before I came <clears throat> into the building this evening, I was doing a little bit of walking meditation out on the south side, enjoying the beauty of the evening and listening to the geese, the wild geese flying around as they they look for a place to settle in for the evening. And just struck by the quality of this place and the setting here. It's, you know, it's such a beautiful uh, forest, forest center. And compared with many of the forest centers where I have practiced, which are surrounded by villages with a lot of noise and um, a lot of activity, loudspeakers blaring all times of the day and human activity that's producing a lot of noise. The, the conditions here are, are quite, quite beautiful and serene in many ways, very supportive for our practice. And, and so many people report on their experience in the woods or in the, uh, in the surroundings here connection to the nature here and so we're so fortunate to have these circumstances I I know people who would probably think they had died and gone to heaven if they found themselves on retreat at IMS and really connecting with nature because nature is the nature here is always teaching us the Dhamma if we care to listen So take, take advantage of that. It said that when the Buddha surveyed the world after his, his enlightenment, and he had this broad kind of vision, I think different ones of us have maybe referred to this capacity he had to, to survey the world. And it said that he saw beings trying desperately to be happy and at the same time doing the very thing that caused them to suffer. And in this regard, not a lot has changed since the days when he was walking around and teaching. And if he were here today and surveyed again, he'd see this same scenario playing out. And if you look at all the strange things we get up to as a species, all the shenanigans that we engage in, and they're all a reflection of this actually very beautiful movement of mind towards finding deep happiness, true happiness, you could say, peace or contentment. And I think it was Monica the other night spoke about it was seeing this that was the inspiration for the Buddha to decide to teach out of compassion for seeing beings wanting to be happy and and having, not having a clue how to actually find it, casting about here and there in this endless pursuit. It's, this is the, I don't know, the human condition in some ways, and it also is a description of this rolling on of endless wandering of samsara. Often in many traditions, certainly in this tradition, there is the sense or description or image of the spiritual life as a kind of journey. Sometimes it's described as a journey home, a journey to one's true home. 
That's a nice image, that sense of, of a journey to one's real home, true home. And if we think about what it might feel like to go to a home, a real home, a good home, a true home, it has, in my mind, connotations of ease and rest. And we walk in the door and there's this sigh of, of letting, letting go of a lot of things that we might be carrying with us and a sense of deep relaxation, feeling of safety, stability. And so maybe we can see the spiritual journey as this walking this path to the, the deepest possible ease to peace and freedom. And, and this can be a, a, a useful image in some ways as long as we don't hold it too literally because it's not that we go somewhere other than where we are right now or get something that we don't have. We end up where we started, but something in our understanding, something has changed, has been transformed. These are a few lines from uh, the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot from the, the one called Little Gidding. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So nothing changes and yet everything is radically transformed, transformed by the power of insight and liberating wisdom or you could say transformed by deeply seeing into the truth of the way things really are. But the Buddha used this language of, of the path. The path is, is woven into his teachings, the eightfold path. And he once described himself as the knower of the path, the seer of the path, and the guide along the path. I'm describing his role in, in presenting, teaching, offering the Dhamma in this way. And it's not the only path. You know, we all have a resonance with it. It's, it's a, there's a lot of clarity to this path. It's very thoroughly taught in the directions there. The maps that are provided are, are, are quite good. But there are many ways to understanding, to realization. This tradition does not have a monopoly on that. You could think of them as fingers pointing at the moon and some are standing over there and they're pointing this way. Some are over there and they point this way. And they use the language uh, that, that is familiar to them and they talk about it in different ways. And we want to look where the finger's pointing and it's pointing actually here inside because it's too easy to, you know, especially if it's a beautiful, eloquent finger. <laughs> we need to be careful that we don't build a temple around that. Because then our finger's the only real one. And there's a lot of problems with temples on fingers. <laughs> Some real dukkha in the world. And so, you know, we, we want to have a sense that we found a real path, a true path. Something over 50 years ago now, 
I, there was a book that was published that was profoundly um, important to me at the time when I was in high school. It was called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. And it was, um, yeah, it impacted my, my life in a, in a profound way. And I think that's reverberated over the decades in some ways. I'd like to read a few words uh, from that that touched me deeply at that time and, and still do. Before you embark on any path, ask the question, does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it, and then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question, and when you finally realize that you have taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. For me, there is only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. And I remember at that time in my life with the, the mind and the turmoil of teenage years, <laughs> far away from me now, closer for some of you, can maybe feel into that energy there. I wanted so badly to feel that way that I could live my life with this kind of breathlessness, this awe to walk a path with heart. It seemed like it might be, it felt like it must be possible, but I couldn't see it being offered anywhere. None of the paths that were being offered to me seemed to have any of that heart. And so maybe we come to this retreat looking for a path with heart, and maybe we're here because we think we've found one. And so as I was saying, the Buddha the Buddha gave some good directions. If we're interested in walking the path that he pointed out, (laughs) he gave us some good directions. And if we take the core, we go to the heart of the teachings, the core. And I feel like everything the Buddha ever said, anything that any of us said is pointing back to the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which culminate um, in the Eightfold Path as the fourth noble truth. They circle back on themselves in a, in a beautiful way. And so we can look at this uh, Eightfold Noble Path as, as a description of our uh, journey as we walk the Buddha's path. And it gives us a, a set of practices and orientations that allow us to understand the nature of suffering and its cause, point towards the abandonment of that cause and the freedom, the cessation of that suffering, and then this path to develop to bring that to fulfillment, you could say, to realize freedom, complete freedom from stress, struggle, suffering. So I'll speak a little bit about this 
this evening. So the Eightfold Path, which I think as one or more of us may have spoken about it in some ways, but it's, it's often seen as divided into three groups. And I know I, a guy talked about this when he was talking about concentration the other night. And so the first one is called the wisdom group. There are two, two path factors, you could say there. Right view, samaditi, and right intention, samasankapa. Sometimes that's translated as right thought. And you could say that these factors, this wisdom group, address the basic orientation of our mind. And, and they actually can lead to a powerful shift of perspective, the, way, the whole way we look at everything. And so the first of these, samaditi, wise or right view, is, is, can be spoken about in a number of ways. Understanding the law of kamma, karma, which is fundamentally uh, an exploration of the law of cause and effect. This is said to be an aspect of right view, that one understands cause and effect. And Vance spoke about this in terms of seeing things as nature. Nature is always talking about cause and effect. Certain causes and conditions this evening, and it rained earlier. And those changed and the rain stopped. In the sutta number nine in the Majjhima Nikaya, is uh, called the Samaditi Sutta. And this uh, discourse was actually the Venerable Sariputta. It's one of the few times when it wasn't the Buddha speaking. And the, the entire teaching is on the subject of right view. And the first and maybe primary way that right view is described or defined is in terms of understanding the Four Noble Truths. So these things as I, in so many ways, circle back on themselves. And this is sometimes called superior right view because it is directly uh, related to uh, liberation teachings. That's the the whole purpose of it is uh, orientation and thrust of the teaching is towards liberation. So it's, it's seen as a highly, highly valuable, superior in this way. And in that uh, teaching in the Samaditi Sutta, Sariputta says, when, friends, a noble disciple understands suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering, in that way, they are of right view. So here, suffering is the translation of the Pali word dukkha. The other evening, Monica used uh, the word stress, which uh, some teachers like, unsatisfactoriness, different translations. And we're, we're, this is going to come up a lot. It has. It will continue because it's really essential that we have a, a practical and um, yeah, practical relationship and understanding. It's really crucial for us. This is from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu Tanjef, who, who likes to use the word stress as a translation. But he says this, no single English word adequately captures the full depth 
range and subtlety of the crucial Pali term dukkha. Many translations of the word have been used, stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and so on. Each has its own merits in a given context. There is value in not letting oneself get too comfortable with any particular translation of this word, since the entire thrust of Buddhist practice is the broadening and deepening of one's understanding of dukkha until its roots are finally exposed and eradicated once and for all. That's a pretty powerful statement. The entire thrust of this practice is broadening and deepening our understanding of this. So on the most fundamental level, Dukkha refers to pain and painful feelings in the body and the mind. Just if we have a body, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it gets sick. No matter what, it gets old and eventually dies. And difficult mental and emotional states that come arise at all times for all of us. And and this is one kind of say the initial way of looking at what this word means. But on a more subtle level, it is these qualities of unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, insecurity that are an aspect of all experience, even pleasant ones. Even pleasant experiences are dukkha on this level. And there's this basic vulnerability, a kind of fragility that pervades all of our life that is a direct reflection of the fact that everything is impermanent. Life is a flow of changing conditions largely out of our direct control. And this leads to this subtle inner anxiety a lot of the time. Things just aren't ever quite right or at least they don't stay that way. In the 1980s, I was living in San Francisco. And I, um, I had interesting work, really great coworkers. I had a good place to live. I had good friends. I had um, lifted my level of coolness to a very high level in my own estimation. <laughs> Um, it's been a slow decline since then. <laughs> I, I lived in this old converted fire station. Very cool. <laughs> I had a vintage BMW motorcycle. Really cool. Nice leather jacket. Yes. I was kind of hanging out in the art scene. Uh, worked, yeah, I was working in that field. And... Um, yeah, I just wish you could have known me then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you would, you'd really have been impressed and said, boy, what a sad decay to the current situation. <laughs> so all of this, and yet there was this thread of dissatisfaction that ran through my days in this sense you know, I've kind of, you know, I'd really gotten my act together in a certain way in terms of my own sort of idea of what would be a really great bohemian urban life, living in what for me was 
coolest place in the United States. And, um, and yet there was this sense of this kind of, well, okay, but, and, and it was really this, um, touching into dukkha on this level that, that propelled me to go to my first meditation retreat. You know, maybe something um, in this arena is, is there, has been there for you historically, some connection to this uh, dis-ease, this uh, vulnerability, this anxiety. And as we start to touch into the depth and breadth which Tom Jeff uh, alluded to there in his in his uh, that quotation where he said, um, you know, we're broadening and deepening our understanding of this this aspect, this truth of existence. You could say we start to see the size, the universality of this the size of the cloth. Bhikkhu Bodhi puts it this way whether in the form of pain, frustration, or distress, suffering reveals the basic insecurity of the human condition. It throws before our awareness in a way we cannot evade the vast gulfs stretching between our ingrained expectations and the possibilities for their fulfillment in a world never fully susceptible to domination by our will. You know, we have this idea that's really hard to let go of, that we should be able to get our lives to the point where things are always the way we want them to be and always pleasant. And this is what Carol spoke about a lot last night and this morning. You know, as this, as if somehow there's some way we can get our lives to be exempt from the truth of change. You know, and we may even come to retreats with, you know, we would never admit it. Maybe it's down underneath a bit, but the secret hope. And and this attitude leads us to take this truth of dukkha personally, as though our inability to get it to just right and stay that way is, is our fault. Evidence of personal failure, but it's just the way it is. You know, it's not our fault. Dukkha is not our personal problem. It impacts all beings. It's woven deeply into the fabric of existence and forms our lives constantly, profoundly. And meditation doesn't, unfortunately, give us a tool or a strategy for gaining some kind of control over life so we can set it up to be the way we want it to be and stay that way. And I promise you, we are not holding out on you there are not secret teachings that we're hoarding. And I personally will call you up immediately, anytime, night or day, if I get that. I will pass it on to you. But I haven't found it. The Buddha didn't find, find it. I'm not sure it exists. So then what is the Buddha's liberation if it's not about setting it up so it's always just right? <laughs> What's, what's it about then? It's not about escaping from the truth of dukkha. Life goes on, joys and sorrows, birth, aging, sickness, death. But suffering in relation to this 
reality is a different thing entirely. That's where we have some ability. We can't fix dukkha. Don't put your energy into that. It's not going to go anywhere. So then the, the Buddha came to this key of profound understanding that he then attempting to teach in all the different ways that he did that stress and struggle and suffering in relation to this pervasive unreliability of dukkha is born in the mind, arises out of this tension in how we're relating to this truth, these attempts to control it, to get things to be other than the way they are, this, um, yeah, this tension there. And this is not to deny the very real suffering that exists for so many in the world the truths of poverty and racism and injustice and oppression are all too real. And life is hard sometimes, no matter how good our circumstances are. But if we look, the genesis of so much of our struggle in life is in relationship to this um, resistance, either denial or fighting against the truth of change, futile attempts to control conditions. This runs counter to, broadly speaking, the way we tend to look at things. We're very conditioned to look outside ourselves for the source of our suffering and struggles and for the solution. We gotta fix, fix the world, fix everybody in it so they behave right and do what we want but they're not fixable, too bad. But this is actually hopeful for us because if our suffering were entirely due to external circumstances and conditions, then then it would be a hopeless situation. But because it's an internal shift, then freedom is possible. We can learn a new way to relate to our experience we can find a way to meet the changing and uncontrollable conditions of life with ease and balance, with joy and freedom in the mind and heart. This is from Ajahn Chah. There are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. So until we actually open to this truth, we're going to be looking for a way out. And we'll be turning to that which by its very nature is incapable of bringing lasting happiness. It's it's unreliable. And this is an endless and ultimately futile search. This is the rolling on of samsara. So skillfully opening to the truth of dukkha leads us to seek a reliable path, a path with heart, you could say, real heart. One that might lead to true happiness, real happiness, lasting peace. This is where we start. This is where the Buddha started. This radically transforms our orientation in life and transforms the truth of dukkha into a noble truth. 
And this links directly then, I've spent so much time on this first wisdom factor, right view, in terms of understanding dukkha. But it links directly with the second wisdom factor, which is right intention. And we could see intention as, a, as the energetic factor that links our understanding, our view, with actions we might take. So we see there's a problem here, dukkha, there's a big problem, and we decide to do something about it. We look for a solution. Again, from Ajahn Chah, in Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think how to ma- think about how to make a pathway. So then we engage with something. We, something is, by the grace of whatever, we come uh, across these teachings, for example. Something leads us to a path. There may be very different, all kinds of different ones. And we decide, okay, I, I'm going to set out on this journey, see, where it, see if it leads somewhere. See if it's a path with heart. And so then this initial um, le- level of view and intention, you know, coming to some um, engagement with these, then this leads to the next uh, group of, of path factors, the Eightfold Path. And this is the second section uh, called the Sila, Sila section. Uh, three factors of right speech, samawacha, Right action, sama kamanta, and right livelihood, sama ajiwa. And you could say that this aspect of the path and the practice is fundamentally about creating harmony in our lives and in the world. So you could say we're not intentionally adding to the suffering in the world through our speech, actions, and the work we do. And so it's this commitment to living life carefully and the kind of purification of our actions, the motivations that inform the intentions that lead to our actions, as Carol was talking about this morning. This then leads to the third section of the Eightfold Path, which is the concentration group or the bhavana. Bhavana means cultivation. In this case, mental cultivation, you could say, mind development. And again, three factors here. So two, three, three, adds up to eight. And this has been spoken about to some extent, right effort, samawayama, right mindfulness, samasati, and right concentration, samasamadhi. There's an illustration of of the way these these, um, energies, factors are woven together or an interdependent relationship that I like. And the image here is of three children who go to a, a park area to play and they're walking along and see, see a tree, a flowering tree, and they want to gather some of the flowers, but they can't reach them. And so um, one friend bends down and offers, uh, makes a platform with his back 
and the tallest child climbs up, but it still feels unsteady. And so the third child offers her shoulder to steady. So support. And it's, um, and then they can reach the, the tall child, can stand on the back of the wand, supported and steadied by the other one, can pick the flowers. And in this simile, it's said that the child who picks the flowers is, it represents concentration, the unified mind. And um, is supported by energy, which is like the child that offers the, the back there, the support and the uplifting of the energy, um, but then is also stabilized by mindfulness. So it said these work together and uh, result in a certain kind of collectedness, stability of mind, a quality of non-distractedness. And it allows our awareness to rest more, a little more firmly on the object of our meditation. You could say it it lets us connect with life and stay present long enough to see below the surface, long enough that insight can arise there. Does this make sense? It lets us, it, it supports this We've used the image of rubbing against, rubbing up against this this kind of um, intimacy with experience. And we can stay there just long enough. And this lets us see deeper into our inner world. We see how things function. We see how habits of mind run our lives. And just through seeing it, there's a natural process of settling and release and letting go that happens really by itself. It's not like a decision we make or, or something we do. It's really seeing how, how suffering arises in relation to this, where struggle arises and we feel that and the mind naturally starts to let go. And through this process, we also start to touch into the possibility, the reality that this path can lead to the deepest possible peace, to complete freedom from stress, struggle, suffering, the peace and freedom of Nibbana. And more than one of my colleagues has shared this simple definition that uh, one of many, but the Buddha once said, Extinction of greed, extinction of hate, extinction of delusion. This I call Nibbana. So in other words, if these energies no longer hold sway over the mind, then one experiences the deepest peace. And what would it be like if these energies were no longer arising in the mind? Can you imagine that? Maybe they're not present right now. Have a look. Seems so far away, but have a look right now. There was a a monk, a teacher who Carol and I used to visit a lot. 
and uh, some other friends of ours, we would try to visit him. He lived in Upper Burma in the Sagaing Hills at a small um, monastery. Um, And he died a few years ago at the age of 98, I believe. And at that time, he'd been in robes for 90, 91, 92 years or something. And he used to be a well-known teacher, and he he was the real deal, deeply practiced uh, yogi, and uh, and the happiest person I've ever met. Very light. It was worth going all the way there just to sit with him for a while for me. And one of my friends, he was he was he was. He liked to gesture and he'd throw his arms up and laugh. And, and one of my friends asked him why he was so happy. And he said, oh, I have no ill will. I have no Ill, Ill will towards you or you or anybody anyway. <laughs> it just was, didn't ever arose in the mind stream. And he was regarded by everyone around there as, as an arahant, as a fully enlightened being. I don't know. I don't have the ability to say that, but if that's an example of what one of those people is like, he was he was really a happy one. So light and yet so deep. And in his in his in the way he talked, these this energy in that in this case he spoke about ill will, but but these energies they, they weren't there. <laughs> they didn't arise. But what if they arose, but they were powerless? That seems pretty good too. This is from an enlightened nun in Thailand, Mei Chi Kao. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire, and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, and delusion. Does that sound familiar? That's everything. All are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states, but no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant where they have any power over my heart. This word Nibbana literally means something like unbinding, although there are connotations of of stilling and cooling and peace. Uh, Supposedly there was a colloquial... um, Understanding or use of this word as, as for like f- letting food cool. Cook the rice and let it nibbana for a while. <laughs> let it <laughs> let it chill out. So we're like getting really chilled out here, you could say. But at the time of the Buddha, a burning fire was seen as having seized hold of or adhered itself to its fuel. It was the way they looked at things. They saw it in this way. And so with this understanding, when it was extinguished, it would be unbound. The fire was unbound from the, from the fuel. 
I, I think this is a, I like this image in this context. You could say when we, when the fuel is removed from the fires of the kilesas of these energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, which we've been speaking about as the, the root causes of suffering, then they, they unbind. <laughs> they just go out like a fire when its fuel is exhausted or when the fuel is removed. Now this word uh, kilesa gets translated as defilement and I actually think that's problematic. Maybe in some uh, circumstances it can be useful, but but I think we have to be careful because then we're just walking buckets of defilement. You know, if these things are present and it doesn't seem so good. But these it's these energies they reflect, you could say, the untrained mind untrained minds attempts to deal with the truths of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and uh, uncontrollability, anicca, dukkha, anatta. They're, they're trying to help. They just have, don't have a good plan for helping us. But they're actually trying to help us. So they're not evil or wrong, but they're misguided. And they show up in, in kind of three levels in terms of, of how they manifest in the world. So they, they manifest on what is called the transgressive level, which is um, where we're acting them out. When they have the upper hand and they lead to actions of body speech um, that, that lead to uh, more suffering. And then the second level, which is mostly where we're um, engaging with them, uh, relating to them in meditation, is called obsessive. And that's when they're arising in the mind. They show up sometimes. But there's enough presence of mind that we're not acting them out. And then there's the subtle level called the latent tendencies, (laughs) where they're not actively present. They're not showing up in the moment, but the potential for them is there. They might, if the conditions are right, they're going to show up certain situation, the right button gets pushed. I was had a really great example of this. I was on a long, really a year-long retreat, uh, practicing wearing um, robes, monks' robes, living in Burma, and uh, more than a year. And um, I had my own little hut, and there was a time when there had been some robberies in the monastery, and they asked us to leave on the porch lights on, of, on our little huts, and but the power was very um, undependable. It would go out a lot. And so I left the light on when I went, went to bed. But it went, the power went out at some point in the night. But while the light was on, lots and lots of insects were drawn to it. And then the little geckos that run around were, boy, they had a feast. And they just dropped down bug legs and wings and the bits they didn't eat down onto my porch. And... Um, so I was sitting in my kuti and waking up very early at that time. I'd been sitting there for a few hours in a very deep, peaceful uh, state. No, um, the kilesas held at bay, <laughs> you could say, they weren't arising, until I stepped out onto my porch and the little ants who had been eating, feasting on the, the bug legs decided that I would be really good to eat. <laughs> and they, they just were on me 
trying to kill and eat me because that's they they do that with smaller creatures and and uh, their bites are quite painful and um, there were some uh, yeah some aversion arose <laughs> that had been dormant. <laughs> So that's a long story. <laughs> the latent tendency to aversion was still present there. <laughs> I hadn't under, un, I hadn't unru- uprooted it. So um, uh, I should try to wrap this up. So um, so now the factors of the eightfold path address these energies on these three levels, but they arrange themselves in an order that's that's often referred to as the three trainings in sila, samadhi, and panya. So. The sila one comes first, then the concentration group, and then the wisdom. So it's a different arrangement. And so the transgressive level where we're acting out these energies is countered by the sila group with, um, that addresses our conduct in, right, in terms of right speech, right action, right livelihood. So we undertake an engagement with the precepts, for example, the, that is the foundation for how we practice and how we live our lives. And um, so then... We're not acting out these energies because if we're acting them out, we can't um, we can't work with the the mental energies and mind states that give rise to them. We, we're we're past that. We're already they've got the upper hand and they're they're running our lives. And so um, then we that commitment to ethical conduct gives us this uh, strength and uh, an inner integrity and ability to then meet them on the second level. Um, where we we sit with them, this right effort, mindfulness, concentration, these tools, then we can meet them in their arising and we sit with anger and frustration and desire and boredom and confusion and dullness. And we get to know them directly, as Mei Chi Kao said, in their natural state. We, We sit with them and we don't have to act on them. We don't have to turn away from them. We don't have to try to manipulate conditions so we so that we don't have to feel them. And we start to see if we're willing to just sit with them, as long as we do it carefully, allow them to arise and pass away as they will, their hold on the mind starts to loosen. They lose their power. They unbind and relax by themselves, not through an act of will. It's just through seeing how they're operating. And then the latent tendencies, like me with my aunts, Um, is addressed by the wisdom factors, the wisdom group. And this is the the deepest level of insight. You could say the insight of insight meditation. And the wisdom addresses the fundamental delusion that underlies these root causes of stress and struggle and suffering. This deeply rooted delusion that takes that which is impermanent to be permanent, that which is incapable of providing lasting happiness and satisfaction as being capable of doing so, and that which is not a self to be a self, or that which is not controllable to be controllable, that which is not amenable to our will to be amenable to our will. Lots of ways we might talk about that. And so addressing the, the understandings of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And so the stability of mind in meditation then allows us to see 
deeply into these realities, into these truths. So we see deeply into the truth of change in this profound, really transformational way. We see things changing very, very rapidly, far more rapidly than our everyday vision can even begin to fathom or or conceive of. And we see that there's nothing there that we can hold on to. (laughs) Nothing could be reliable. Even the most sublime experience is subject to change. So we can't ask that to be the source of our our deepest happiness. It, It doesn't last long enough. And we see that that which we have identified with and taken to be I, me, mine, what we take to be a self is just this natural process of cause and effect, conditions unfolding according to nature, natural law. We see that everything is just this natural process that's happening by itself and there's no one behind it, no one controlling it and no one to whom it's happening. But we see that it is this process of identification, of clinging to it, of grasping onto it in the mind, gives substance to this feeling, I am, and that what we call a self is a feeling that arises out of how we're relating to experience. And seeing this deeply, you can almost say just letting it soak in. <laughs> seeing is, is be careful with that word. It's like we marinate in this, and we marinate in it, it gets in through our bones and cells and being. But seeing deeply in these ways inclines the mind and heart to release. We let things arise and cease because that's their nature, they're gonna do it anyway. And we let go of struggle with that. And non-attachment, release, liberation arise as a result. So a couple more, a few more words from Mei Chi Kao. In a perfectly still, crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily and fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. It's like we see this fist we've been making that we didn't know, and we just stopped making it. And slowly it lets go. So I think I'll end with a few more words from Ajahn Chah. We've been, he's so quotable. (laughs) 
Let's kind of put a couple of things together here. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's just the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see truth wherever you look. Truth is all you'll see. Thank you for coming this evening and for your kind attention. We have about uh, 35 minutes for some of that good, good old walking meditation. And uh, we'll come back together at nine and do some chanting to end the day for those who have the energy and would like to join. Please be welcome. <clears throat>